Welcome, travelers. I'm Josh. I'm Glenn. And I'm Lee Wanika. This is Tabletop Journeys, where we will be your humble guides along the journey to RPG adventures. We are all D&D role players and storytellers at heart. It's where we started out, and it's where we find ourselves most at home. So here in our main podcast episodes, we discuss the core rules, how to use them as written, and how to homebrew your own content to get the most out of your story. Because detailed settings, heroic characters, vibrant NPCs, and a focus on story over rules is what makes a campaign legendary. Here's a message from friends of the show. Hub Station Andromeda. Priority. SOS. Station under attack by CFM. 18 confirmed hostiles. One crew KIA. Hazardous materials on board. Surviving crew abandoning station. Data packet attached. RX acknowledge. 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 End transmission. Hi, we're Leyline Press, and we're proud to present Andromeda, a module for the Mothership sci-fi horror RPG. Available to back on Kickstarter now, it's printed in fluorescent green ink on embossed black paper. As it glows under UV light with a huge A3 map handout for your players, it's ideal for an atmospheric night of gaming. Find out more at leyline.press, or find us on Kickstarter by searching Andromeda for Mothership. Welcome everybody to today's episode. So tonight we're going to go ahead and dive into the well of fabulous show topic ideas that we got from our questions from the audience episode from a couple of months ago. And we are going to start tonight with a question that came from one of our favorite podcasters, great friend of the show from the Marvelous Madams podcast. Madam Amy threw a question out there about solo playing RPGs. If anybody out in the audience here is not familiar with what a solo playing RPG is, it is, quite frankly, it's exactly what it sounds like. It is a Dungeons and Dragons or Dungeons and Dragons like experience that you run for yourself. I'm going to say by yourself. I'm going to say by yourself. I'm going to put by yourself in air quotes because there's some variations on there that can that can sometimes work out. And I know particularly Amy was talking about taking on both roles of both playing and running a solo experience through Dungeons and Dragons adventures. Uh, so we're going to go ahead and talk about it uh, tonight. We've done a bunch of research on this. We've got a bunch of ideas on how to go ahead and and do this. Um, so I think uh, I think everyone out there is in for a good show. But uh, uh, Luanika, Glenn, good evening. Nice to see you as always tonight. Fantastic. Absolutely, Josh. Thank you so much. We are uh, talking to each other back in our normal uh, places. TTJ Studios North, South 1 and South 2. 
you know, Maine and Connecticut. <laughs> so I get to be Connecticut. South one. I'll be South too. I don't mind. So with that, I'm absolutely chuffed at the uh, idea of talking about this topic. I was actually very uh, like that, Josh. See what I did there? I did. I did. I liked what you did there. Because for two reasons. One, I got to do a lot of research on a topic I really didn't know about uh, or a part of this topic that I didn't know about. And two, I will have the opportunity as we go through this to talk about some of my earliest, I would say, formative role-playing experiences which were done in this vein. I'm really excited to be able to share that with the audience uh, and to some extent with you and Glenn because there are elements of this that you've probably heard some stories from without realizing exactly how some of those things took place. And this is where I'm going to kind of bring that all together. I am excited about that because so I have not done a lot of solo RPG playing, um, or at least I have not done a lot of solo RPG playing in a sense that I knew that I was solo RPG playing. And we'll get into that kind of, I think, as, as we talk about that, right? I, I, I see Glenn laughing. I think he knows exactly what kind of where I'm going with this. Like there, there's sometimes like you don't even know that that's what's going on, right? There is some question about whether or not solo play means strictly playing by yourself. Exactly. Yeah, so we choose the word carefully there. We're not trying to have, you know, <clears throat> Josh shoot soda out of his nose. <laughs> it could also, you know, there's some other definitions that might mean more like really condensed play style. But well, yeah, but I really did enjoy looking into it because I had done some of it, you know, when I was younger, working with D&D &D playing solos. They put out a couple of... Uh, I want to say in the basic set when you got it you had, there was actually a small solo adventure just to teach you the basics of the rules in it i believe that was a d and d i believe it was it might have even been second edition i think they had some solo stuff i think it was a d and d basic box set actually yeah I'm, i've been playing for a long time um <laughs> but i was also when i was younger really into choose your own adventures which are similar and thinking about that as I went into it and then discovering a concept of solo play I had never even run across before. I'm, I'm kind of excited. I even bought one. Ooh, excellent. Cool. All right. Well, let's go ahead and dive in here. So we're going to talk about uh, a couple different types of solo RPGs, or I guess, uh, for lack of a better term, a, a couple of different mechanics for running a solo RPG. Um, and we're going to start tonight with kind of the, the the base definition, right? The truly one-person solo RPG, where a single player, for lack of a better term, wears both the storyteller and the player hats. Um, and they are both running the adventure and reacting to the adventure. And I think that even within, with uh, even underneath kind of that umbrella, there are uh, kind of two distinct paths that you can go down. Um, I picked up the excellent book, DM Yourself, by Tom Scutt, which details in a lot of detail how to take a canned D&D 5 adventure module. Um, in fact, specifically, he says thing, things that are very linear, like um, like the Minds of Flendever and stuff like that, uh, are excellent for things like this. Um, but how to take a D&D 5 canned adventure and run it by yourself. Uh, and, he, and there are some fantastic details in this book about how to go through them. We're going to start diving that into the, just a second. Um, and then Glenn, you said that you, uh, you picked up a lot of uh, kind of the other branch of these truly solo RPGs. And 
dove into sort of the journal style games, um, which I found uh, fascinating. When I was looking at this online, I thought that they sounded incredibly cool. Um, so I would I'd love to have you talk for a few minutes about kind of what you found. Uh, and so we can we can start there tonight. Okay. And yeah, this is the the section that I've got the most to say on because it really kind of captured my writer's heart. Um, cause I call myself a maker, but I, I started as a writer. It's just all the other creativity just kind of coalesced into a gazillion different things. And I make all kinds of stuff now, but writing's where it all started. So it really, really spoke to me. And the idea behind it is kind of cool cause it's just you, right? So no matter what you do, uh, in terms of the running part of it, you need something that's an engine to generate random events. And then through journaling, you tell the story. And there's a couple of different ways that that's done. Well, actually, for straight up solo play games where you're all alone and you're not converting 5e, there are also other random generator game engine games for like getting into crunchy math, dungeon delving, and tables that'll like come up with different passageways and things like that for you with creatures if you want to play the straight up mm-hmm. dungeon delve, dungeon crawl style game. But with journaling, it gets a little bit less crunchy in terms of, uh, numbers and math and a little bit more into the narrative storytelling side and you know really coming up with if you're one of those people that really gets into their character's background and by the time you've got five pages written in your dms like oh my god what is this that's what (laughs) journaling is journaling is for you um and the way it works is uh one of the games that i i liked the most um it's called the adventurer well I can't say like the most because I've only read it and I haven't read the other ones, but reading the descriptions, uh, it's one of the ones recommended to start. I really liked the description of uh, the way it was set up and how simple it was. All you need to play this game, aside from spending five bucks to buy the PDF that's going to give you basically the instructions for the engine, is a standard deck of playing cards and a journal. And then as you go through the game, basically to run this style of game for yourself, Uh, The way this one in particular works is it'll start with, say, you split the deck into its four different suits and spades represent locations, hearts represent events that happen while you're traveling, diamonds are things that you can find, and clubs are beings that you will encounter. And then you use the different tables in the game Hmm. to tell the story by journal entry. So the very first thing you do is you draw a location card, and it's going to tell you something about where you are right now. And your job is to now come up with where you are, why you're there, what you're doing in this town or wherever it is, come up with a date off the calendar or make one up your own and start a journal entry as the person who's there. And then as you go through the game and answer more questions, you'll effectively build your own world and your own adventure and your own story as you go. And you can keep going for as long as you want. You could fill volume after volume if you wanted to, or you find a nice natural stopping point. And you quit. And that has really, really captured uh, my, my writer's brain. I already do a bunch of writing exercises. I do a free writing exercise in the morning. I do guided journaling to help me sort out thoughts. So this, this really spoke to me. Nice. Yeah, that sounds, uh, that sounds awesome. I have often thought of what are some of the interesting ways, like we've been doing this for a while. We're involved. Each of us are involved in many, many games. And we're in the process of doing a lot of creation. And I am always trying to find new ways to build up a stable of NPCs or even create uh, backstories for pregens for things that I might do in the future. Like whenever an idea strikes me, it would do that. And something like that, let's say I'm on a plane ride and I'm going someplace. That's something I could literally do on the plane 
you know, provided we're not in turbulence like my most recent flight. Um, <laughs> but I can, I can literally do something like that for uh, several story beats based on something like that and create a background. Like if we had a game world, Josh, you're wonderful at building roll tables. I mean, you could literally make a roll table of locations for this game world. You could make a roll table of items mm-hmm. that could be found or encountered, uh, other persons and situations that could be encountered, and you literally have the ability to do, use the cards, almost like the life paths we talked about in our backgrounds episode. We're going to deal out uh, eight of these cards, and that's going to represent the things that happened to you within year one of your backstory. And you could just say, roll a D4, that's how many years we're going to do with it. And I think that that would be freaking brilliant. I could see us doing something like that to create really dynamic and non-storyteller controlled backgrounds. Like these are random people. Exactly. Especially when you're struggling to come up with, you know, there's only so many times you can, you can spin stories before sometimes you accidentally start to repeat plots or you wind up with similarities, adding in something to help you uh, spice things up with some random generation will get your creative juices flowing. That's something that it, that the creative world building kind of scheme helps so much with. Is that you know half the time when I, when I'm using creative world building to go ahead and launch a plot or launch a scene or something like that, it's nice because I'm I'm basically giving a prompt uh, similar to the way that uh, that you were laying out there, Glenn. That you know I'm providing a prompt. Someone is writing their paragraph and feeding it back to me, and then tying them together is is my job as the storyteller. And that's one right. of the things that I that I loved most about journal games, and one of the things that I loved most about the one that you talked in particular was how it kind of combines the two worlds of like a journaling RPG and like an Oracle driven RPG, right? Like kind of like if you think about like the old from the, from the eighties and nineties, the old mushes and muds, right? It's basically a, uh, I'm trying to even think of one now, but where you, you, you've been hideously eaten by a Gru, right? You know, it's like that, it's like that whole Zork. Zork thank you. Yeah. You know, where I got you, bro. <laughs> I played the crap out of some Zork, you know, which is basically <laughs> just a, just a choose your own adventure with a ton of different options programmed in there. Yep. And that, and they it were was. all contextual based on where you were. So I, I love, I love the way that, that that is set out. I was gonna say, Josh, that was a great segue. Um, you mentioned it in our intro that uh, effectively the solo play is very similar to choose your own adventure. When we first approached this topic, yep. that was my very first thought because I abused the hell out of some choose your own adventure books. Uh, oh, at yeah. some point when I would go in and get the scholastic book club of the month, every single choose your own adventure book at some point, grade three until they stopped giving them to us was in my library at yeah. some point. Like I just kept getting those books. You've spent, 30 years convincing me you don't read fiction. No, no, no. I said I stopped reading fiction after a certain point, but uh, that was when uh. I was still reading fiction. And I actually stopped reading fiction uh, just about my senior year in high school. But essentially, I loved Choose Your Own Adventure. I would go through every permutation. I would reread it every time and try to remember choosing the different option, only to find that sometimes like, I would still end up at the same point because spot, a yeah. limited number of ends. So it's, okay, so how cool can this story be to get to the same outcome? And I would kind of do that. So, uh, And I love that element of it. So this sparked that interest in me in that, wow, it's choose your own adventure with many more choices, less predictability, and therefore a better potential for narrative juice. And uh, I just love that concept. Yeah, but it's also bare bones. Like when you draw a card, it's going to give you 
bare bones that you have to flesh out. You know, it's not going to give you the whole story. And with the journaling version that I read for The Adventurer, um, that one's designed to just tell an ongoing story for as long as you choose to journal. But there's another style also uh, that's referred to as open-ended experiences. It's similar to journaling, but it's more scene-focused. So instead of being one big, long journal, uh, but one of them is an example, is called Alone Among the Stars. And yes, I was going to talk about, about that being, one. Yeah. Oh, I didn't mean to jump into there on you then, Josh. You go for it. Uh, I was just going to say, it's just more situationally based where you're instead, you already know going in with that one, that you're going to be fleshing out prompts that yeah. are going to be about being alone among the stars. You know, think of this, the vastness of space and, you know, the emptiness and that type of vibe is what you're going to get out of that. You're just going to work the scene till you're done with it. And then, you know, it's not designed to keep going forever, but those sound very interesting too. I was just sucked immediately into the first one more. I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned Alone Among the Stars because that's that's one that I am uh, that I'm familiar with and that I've seen, um, and it's excellent. It really is excellent. Um, when I was researching here, there were a couple of others that I um, so I, I found myself drawn to uh, uh, as in all things the ones that are a little weird <laughs> to be <laughs> frank. Uh, and the one, uh, they they all uh-huh. kind of seem based on that same sort of in very similar kind of mechanic where it's like where you're fleshing out prompts and you're it's you're almost writing the entirety of the story uh one of them was called the machine uh which is a horror based scenario um about basically a mad scientist who is making who is making and unable to complete a machine um and how it is playing into his his own insanity and things like that. So I thought that was really, uh, really, really interesting. Um, there is another one um, that gets uh, that uh, was on Kickstarter not that long ago. Uh, it was on Kickstarter in, uh, I mean, earlier this year called the thousand year old vampire that, you know, again, is uh, it's all about kind of detailing memories that, come over uh, the span of an entire millennia, right? We've, we've talked about that before, about how kind of one of the big challenges with the vampire LARP was how does one play a timeless, immortal, all-powerful being, right? And so uh, the thousand-year-old vampire seeks to explore that, right? Um, and I thought that that was really neat. Uh, so a lot of opportunity in, I think, the journaling game space for a lot of variation. And because they are exceptionally rules light and creativity heavy, like that's kind of their their big hallmark. Yeah, I like what you're saying there. And I think uh, the creativity and the rules light is a huge thing to really bring home. To further emphasize what Josh is saying, one of the benefits of having larger groups at the TTRPG ta- uh, table is that you don't have to know everything because there are five to eight other people sitting around the table with you. And as long as you collectively know everything that needs to be known or can find everything that needs to be known, you've got it covered. The less people you have, the more expertise you need or the more rules light you must get in order to have a fun and relatively seamless experience. So I think as you get more, less and less people down to this solo, I'm the only person playing the game, you have to get relatively rules light. Uh, think about it in card terms. If you're playing solitaire, there are not a lot of variations on solitaire, really. Uh, you can get to spider solitaire. You can do a couple different things that can get a little specific, but generally it is what it is. There's one basic set of rules. Yep. Things move in a single way. 
in the RPG sense, they, the same goal is achieved by going rules light. Focus on the narrative, focus on the story, focus on where you're going. The how becomes important as far as how you tell it, describe it, that type of thing. But the mechanics don't matter. I mean, what are you going to do? Cheat yourself? Right. <laughs> I mean, really, you can roll dice. You can use an, uh, uh, an online engine. Uh, you can use a random table. But at the end of the day, you're not cheating yourself. If you're the only person playing, if you have fun making a selection versus making a random roll, that's what's fun. Right. I started choose your own adventures. Like once I made a choice, I won't go back. And then I realized I'm the only person in this room. I'm the only person on this, uh, uh, in this chair on the bus. If I want to go back and choose a different way, I'm going to go back and choose a different way. I can still have fun and enjoy the book. And so I think, uh, rules light becomes the watchword. And I love the fact that it is. So that actually, uh, is a fantastic segue to kind of the other side of the truly solo experience. It is about as different from a journal game as it could be, right? The the true solo, I'm running through a canned adventure as both storyteller and player. Um, because and I think just based on what you were talking about there, the the thing with running a game like this is that it is not rules light. It is in fact leaning into kind of the heaviness and the the dice mechanics of DD in particular mm-hmm. to go ahead and serve as that game engine. So it's it's almost a little bit more like a video game where instead of sitting in front of a console playing with a, with a controller, you've got a character sheet and you've got dice, and that dice is uh, the the dice are uh, they take the place of the game engine that sits inside your game console, right? And I don't want to dive too far into um, into kind of the particulars of executing that. Uh, look, at the end of the day, Mister Scott here has written a sixty five page book with very tiny print on how to do it, and the book is excellent. If you are at all interested in doing a solo run RPG, I strongly suggest picking up DM Yourself by Tom Scott. It's fantastic. And there's one aspect of it in particular that I wanted to go ahead and talk about because like all things, whenever we're talking about something which is slightly outside of the scope of a traditional D&D TTRPG, we're trying to go ahead and see how can we go ahead and take this thing that is a characteristic of that and bring it to our game table. And so I wanted to kind of open this up for discussion among the three of us. One of the things that he details and recommends is that when you are playing both the person that is reading the book and revealing the things that are in the book and the player, the key to making it work is before you sit down to start is designing a list of default behaviors for your character. So in other words, some examples are that every time my character goes into a room that he's never been in before, the first thing my character does is look to see if there's treasure right default behavior and then when you have to flip the when you have to you know put the put the dm hat on and you read the description of the room that the character just went into right remember that the default behavior of the character is to look for the treasure but not necessarily to look for the trap in the door right um and so uh i wanted to kind of kind of broach that a little bit what do you guys think about uh about default behaviors and how do you think we could bring those to a party based uh rpg or do they? Like, I, I like they? it. Yeah, I love that idea, and I do variations of it myself. Okay, yeah, I agree. I do as well. Um, it's usually it usually just comes down to 
how I've designed it and somewhere in the backstory and having a solid idea as opposed to a pre-written set. But I'm also usually playing in an improv setting with a number of other players mm -hmm. where I've got to hold myself accountable for, you know, not metagaming around it. Having a pre-written set seems to make a lot of sense. Yep. Th that's exactly why I started doing something similar that I don't think it's as well defined as I have it written down, but I spend a lot of time. Benito Sinese at Streams of Sphero knows that I have a, generally speaking, a set of things that I standardly do. Like I have a combat sequence. Uh, Glenn, I've shared that with you. Josh, you've seen it. I have yep. a combat sequence. This yep. is what yep. I would, you have it written is, out for HK. Yeah. This is my default. And the and part of the reason is so if we come across a creature or situation that I know about meta but should not know about as a player, I have something that I would always do. And I've yet to come into a situation where Benito has had to say to me, man, that's, that's out of game knowledge. You're going to have to go with your default. You know, or something like that. But that's that's kind of the, that is the tool. That's the governors I put on myself because I spend so much time behind the screen. And quite honestly, I shop talk with other DMs. Yeah, sometimes it's hard to keep it. Ben separate. and I shop talk. Josh, you and I shop talk. Glenn, you and I shop talk. Mm -hmm. This podcast is shop talk. <laughs> we shop talk on the podcast. Yeah, <laughs> all of right. our audience is privy to a large degree of our shop talk. Right. We, we effectively shop talk semi-professionally at this point. Exactly. So because of that, I use limiters such as defaults for combat sequences, default conversational behavior, or default guard systems. I use that in my game. I suggest to players, what's the standard watch going to be? You know, what's that going to look like? So if we forget to go into those details, if I forget to slow it down and stop, it's like, hey, this is what you guys typically do. So I'm going to assume that's what you did, unless somebody says it's going to be different. Yeah, there was there was a face not to cut you off, Luanika, but this that actually reminds me there was a Facebook there was a question in the I think it was in the uh, I think it was the Dungeons and Dragons five the five E yeah, forum. It was I the think. D D five E forum, yeah. and the the question was basically uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember exactly the way that it was worded, but it was basically as a storyteller, how would how would you assume this scenario? How would you assume how the scenario plays out? And it was a wizard uses mage hand to pick something up and put it in his belt pouch. When he goes to retrieve it from his belt pouch, how do you assume he's taking it out? Do you assume that he's using his dominant hand, his non-dominant hand, mage hand, or some other way? Right? Because he used mage hand to put it in. Right. And I, so I think that that's, that's sort of, it sort of plays into this. It's like, and my answer is as a storyteller, I would look to how he's ever taken things out of his pouch. And if the bulk of the times he's taken things out of his pouch with his hand, if he does not indicate differently, then he uses hand. Yeah. If the bulk of the times he takes things out with mage hand, he uses mage hand. Then I'm going to say you expended a spell and you use mage hand. And again, that's how you do it. Cause I believe in that case, the scenario was it was a cursed item. The player had not touched cursed it initially Isn't Mage because Hand he was a afraid. Cantrip, though? I believe it is. It is. Yeah. it is. I was wondering about the you expend a spell slot part. Uh, but Mage Hand or things like Mage Hand, some of them are resource-driven, dependent on if you're using the cantrip or if you're using psionic abilities. And Neither here nor there. In general, you're using an ability versus just reaching it with your hand. Uh, w whether that includes a resource expenditure or not, you know, and, and so I thought that a default becomes what I would go with as a storyteller. And I would have no problem saying you've never done that before. So that's why you that's why you're not doing it now. I, I, I think that there is a tendency 
as a storyteller sometimes, sometimes to try to get a little cheeky with the traps that we have laid out for our players that they haven't got. And to in that kind of a situation, say, okay, I'm gonna take the I'm gonna take the item that I picked up a couple of hours ago out of my belt pouch. The temptation as a storyteller to go and say, how do you take it out of your belt pouch is really tempting. And I think that 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 it's one of those things that as a storyteller, we have to be very careful of not doing. Let the let let the players give us information and don't try to don't try to prime the pump. Right. Don't try to prompt it and say, well, are you doing anything spectacular? You know, and I think that I think that you're right, Leonique. I think that default behaviors are a good way to kind of get that down. It's a really deep well that you could go down in, in your session zero. Like, okay, I need everybody to lay out for me your default answer for which foot you leave a room with. Which, 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 which foot do you step with? first you know that kind of, like there, so there's a really deep well that you can go down in laying out default behaviors when you drink the royal <laughs> which tea pinky do you extend? which pinky yeah. do you extend <laughs> yeah yeah um uh, clearly the one with the cup in it yeah you could go crazy with that and i yeah. don't recommend yeah. going crazy with it i think common no, sense should prevail either. storytellers need to as josh said don't prime the pump sit back let let your players describe. Let the players play. As a storyteller, you need to demonstrate and, uh, that behavior with your NPCs. And you need to also describe better. And basically, give the descriptions you are hoping your players are giving to you. Uh, and, and that way, they're mirroring your, their, your behaviors. So when it comes up in a critical situation, you've got a lot to go by. Let's carry on here. Let's start talking about uh, and kind of an expansion on the truly solo game. And these are games where there is a single player and a single storyteller. Now, Lee Wanika, you said that you uh, that you found a lot of information on these in particular, and kind of the uh, uh, the cousin that emerges from them. And we're going to get to that one in just a second here. But why don't you go ahead and dive in and start talking about these? So it's less that I found information and more that I have probably 15 to 20 years of experience with this specific type of gaming. So I'll start with where I kind of got the general concepts of role-playing in general long before I ever played D&D, long before that camping trip at Camp Massasoit on the South Shore. I played with Playmobil action figures, Fisher-Price adventure people, uh, eventually GA Joes and Transformers and Matchbox cars. I didn't just play with these toys. I created stories. Generally speaking, they were extensions of the story of the shows I watched on television. So with my Legos, I played extensions of seasons of Star Blazers. With my cars, I played extensions of seasons of the Dukes of Hazzard. Uh, with my GA Joes, I played extensions of the comic books GA Joes. With Transformers, those I pretty much goofed around with. I didn't have a whole lot of Transformers. Didn't have I didn't have the, ca the, the cash flow to keep up with Transformers and G.A. Joe simultaneously. It was a one or the other gig. And at the end of the day, Snake Eyes always freaking wins. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so uh, that's just how that goes. But I totally role-played. I'm Snake Eyes. I'm Luke Duke. I'm 
all of the, uh, you know, I'm these characters. I'm Derek Wildstar on the bridge of the Argo. Uh, and I extended the shows. I didn't just play the episodes that were on TV. I created my own episodes that followed. I did my own thing after the Comet Empire season of Star Blazers. That is, in effect, role playing. And I didn't realize that at the time. And it's actually as an adult, when I think back on my experiences, that's what I was doing. Somewhere along the way, as a Navy brat, I moved across the street from this kid who's quite a few years younger than me. And his name is Marty. We realized that we were doing right, the same on. thing. Luanica, before, before you dive in there, before you dive into, into that, uh, I wanted to share that what you just said made me realize that. So when I was a kid uh, and I would collect baseball and football cards, one of the things that I loved doing more than anything else was getting entire teams together, getting entire lineups together, and then using baseball cards and football cards and playing through football games. Like I would use pennies. I, I would use pennies as the balls, right? And normally it would be like I'd watch a game the night before, I'd memorize it, and then I'd play it the next day with the same teams, right? Uh, or change the outcome if the Red Sox lost, you know, that kind of thing, right? So Buckner did catch it is what you're saying? <laughs> you did uh, tee that up. Yeah, I did tee that up. I, it's true. <laughs> um, I had no yeah, choice. I yeah. couldn't let that one go. Yeah. Bucky freaking dent. That's all I'm going to say. Um <laughs> uh, but all that to go ahead and say that I, until you said that, I never, I never thought about the fact that I was role playing in some way, running, running my own solo RPG. Uh, I, I had just, I had just never thought about it before. And that's kind of what RPGs did for us kids, though, is it gave us a structure to apply our imaginations around. You know, Lee, Lee used the shows that he watched and wrote and did basically wrote, but without necessarily writing all the time, extensions of the stories that he loved. And Josh, you were recreating your baseball games. For me, I did similar things with the, with my toys when I was playing by myself, and I did a fair amount of playing on my own. But I wrote my own stories. There were sometimes not even the characters that they represented when they were G.I. Joes or whatever else. But yeah, it's effectively all of the things that we do as kids and when we're pretending all, all it has to be is, you know, sitting down with another kid and playing cars. It's role-playing. It's just without the structure that the, these games give us. And, and so what I realized at some point is, and I did the same thing when I used to make paper action figures of the DC superheroes and eventually the Marvel superheroes. So I could play out comics that I couldn't afford to buy. Like I could go to the smoke shop that sold the comic books when I didn't have enough money to buy the comic. I could read the comic, come home and play out the comic. Or, and if I didn't remember, I might do it differently and I'd have my own headcan. I was fan fictioning before fan fictioning was cool. And I think on some level, that's why the hobby starts with many folks very young and sticks with them. Because if they're a creative sort, if that's the type of play that they were engaged in to begin with, this hobby really speaks to that. It adds structure. It adds ways for other people to join. Uh, it becomes cops and robbers with rules so that you don't get devolve into the argument. Uh, I got, I shot you. Uh, no, you didn't. You missed. Your aim was off. You know, you didn't go down to the range last week or whatever the case may be. You know, uh, I, I, and I remember all those little arguments. Once I got into role playing, that never happened. 
because there's a die roll to indicate whether I hit or miss. I think that's why D&D originally started as a more uh, adversarial type structure than it is now was because that effectively the, the game style that it was replacing was very PVP or certainly player versus uh, storyteller. With Marty, we realized very early this was so much fun, but it was just the two of us. So when we talk about that next level, one storyteller, one player, uh, and one player character, that's where Marty and I started roleplay. I had played once or twice before, but when I started playing all the time, and I mean five days a week, two hours a day, for years, that was myself and Marty playing either at his house or my house, and it was him as a, as a DM, me as a player, and I played one character. We found very quickly that my one character could not get through an adventure module by himself. Didn't work out so good? Nope. Died in the first room. So he's like, you can go back to town, make a new character. So I made it, I got a new character. And eventually I have this whole party that was effectively the pre-gens from the red box. So I had one fighter, one wizard, one cleric, one everything except for a paladin, I think. And I finally was able to get through the adventure and Marty role-played that. And then we role-played for about a year where he was this, the, the, the DM. We, uh, most, much of it was modules. Much of it was homebrew. A lot of the homebrew was what we did between modules. And then at a certain point, he's like, I would really like to play. So I said, well, since I have my one main character and all these NPCs, you make a character, level them up to this. I'll run you and all of my one character will become an NPC. And then you can do this. So then I ran for many, many months and then we'd switch back. Pretty much every other year is what we would do. Is what, or I'll, It may not have been a year, it may have been six months, whatever the time frame was. It was relatively even, but we would swap back and forth and we would each DM for each other. Um, so I have a lot of experience with the one-on-one and there's great storytelling. Uh, there's a lot of discussion. Uh, the combats can be a little strange when it's one player character and just the DM, but Marty got very good at creating challenges and then managing challenges so they remained challenging and didn't necessarily wipe me out. He only gave experience when experience was earned. Uh, we didn't milestone at the time, but he didn't give experience points if you didn't role play your character. He didn't give experience if you weren't in character. I couldn't like, I'm going to take, I couldn't have my main character take all the good stuff from this other character uh, because that didn't make role playing sense. If it didn't make sense, he would let me do it. He would say, nope, so-and-so would not give that up. I had to have separate personalities. Uh, and it really gave me the ability, what I think the reason why I'm able to do so many NPCs well is from that experience. Hmm. So a question for you then on the um, single DM and a player playing multiple characters front. Did you find that it was hard to maintain immersion when you were playing three or four different characters? Because I could imagine, I would imagine that those three, that the personalities of those three or four characters would begin to get very similar over time. Uh, if you're, if that's what you're trying to go ahead and do, did you find that that was a problem or, or if not, how were, were you able to mitigate that? I never found that to be a problem. None of my characters were similar in personality. They were all vastly different. Now, to some extent, that was due to a conscious choice to make certain characters tropish. 
other char characters slightly off trope, but because of that, they were very different personalities. I have one, like, uh, for instance, I'll speak about Thomas and Eric, the two brothers. Thomas was my main character. He was the one that Glenn likes to say, no matter what you start with, you always end up going paladin-like. That was that character. That was the first character I ever played, uh, I ever played that did that. And even though he's a ranger, when we finally got kits in second ed, I took the ranger just, ju justifier for that reason. Cause effectively he was a paladin like he was a virtuous, lawful type of guy. His brother was brash, willing to fight all the time. He's a nice guy. He was a good guy, but he was chaotic good. Uh, so he and his lawful brother were always very at loggerheads. I don't know whether I was channeling uh, sibling relationships that I witnessed on television or in movies, but they very much were very different personalities. I used to argue with myself no differently than we sat at the Alana's table, 12 people trying to decide which way to go, arguing with myself about what plan we would take. Uh, you know, how would we attack something like that? Um, there's huge spoilers for the campaign I currently run which is rooted in that actual campaign that was run because it was actually one of those loggerhead debates between eight, seven or eight characters. Uh, that is the result of my land of 18 seas campaign. Hmm. Okay. It, 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 so it's an argument that those characters who are in that world, by the, by the way, are still having today. I never found an issue with, um, and I would go so far as to say, if you've ever seen me at a LARP as a storyteller playing two, two characters in a scene, it, it was as smooth as that. Like, it was never an issue. I'm glad that you brought up Alanis, though, because when you were talking about Thomas, the ranger who eventually became a paladin, it dawned on me that that's exactly the same character that you played in Alanis when you were playing Razan II, who was, if I remember correctly, either a ranger or a rogue, who eventually became a paladin. A actually, Razan was a priest who was kicked out of seminary school, became a rogue because he lost his priesthood, and then got his his priesthood back. So he was a he was a cleric. Um, but uh, but 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 that was actually by design. Well. Right, but that's—I guess that that's sort of that's sort of my Ashton, point. However, is that Razan's father—he was a fighter who became a paladin. Kind of the same model, so maybe that's why. And and maybe calling you out is is not quite the right word, but I am going to go ahead and point out that once you've decide once you decided on those six or seven tropes thirty years ago, how much do you think that? I guess it it seems like. You know, we, we've kind of joked about how you play the same three characters all the time, right? And so, like, they, yeah. they were kind of born from this experience. And I find, I, I guess, less call out and more, and I find this interesting that you kind that that's how you separate it out. You made those personalities so distinct that they've kind of been with you ever since then. Um, and I think, I think more than sort of saying that, I think that that actually sort of kind of supports the argument that it is tough to, that it's very tough to separate your your own personality so distinctly that you can play different characters at the same table effectively without doing what you did. And like I said, that that's creating those personas so distinctly and so well and so finely tuned that you've been able to go ahead and continue to go ahead and play them. You've been able to take the same the same trope and put a different hat on it uh, for you know almost 40 years. So yeah, 
my only response to that is uh, that pathos runs deep. And I would go so far as to say every character I play is some element of my own personality expanded. So there is an element of me that is that paladin, that striving to be a paladin. So when I play that redemptive struggle, the, the, the one who was going to be good became a rogue and then becomes good again, fights to be good again and go on. That's a bit of wish fulfillment that I'm role playing. That's why I keep going back to that particular trope. Uh, I okay. play the one who has no cares in the world, just goes out and does the, the good deed, doesn't give a rat's ass about plotting, planning, whatever. That's another aspect of my personality. It's not one that I give a lot of. I don't feed that particular wolf often. But when I do, you've probably seen me in that mode, right? There's also yeah. those other elements. So when I play certain characters and I'm thinking of Docs specifically, that that is that other element. And that is less wish fulfillment and more uh, personal acknowledgement of a bit of a darker part of my nature that I exercise through the role-playing table, right? So I think that that's what I do. I am always playing an aspect of myself expanded. There's a lot of greatness between just you and the DM on the same page as far as where the story is going. There was a lot of back and forth where the DM for me was, where do you want to go in this world? What are your character's goals? I'm like, well, I want to build a better society. I like this town we just visited, but they don't have good defenses. They've got enemies on all these borders. I want to go out and weaken their enemies. So then all of a sudden we finally found a place that we were going to build up. So, and this was first edition. So, uh, Characters got followers after a while. So it's like our, our, we gathered followers. We built strongholds. We built uh, colleges. We built uh, libraries. And we built up this small town into this little city with the purpose of making a mark on the world of Greyhawk, which is where we played at the time. You know, and then we would expand our, our reach. And, you know, that was how it really came down to is we were doing this. Now, what I didn't know is simultaneously a good friend of mine from high school had a friend of his who was his solo DM that was doing a similar thing in a different part of Greyhawk. He and I thought it would be a great thing because we used to brag about, oh, I have all this great army. He used to brag about him having all this great army, what it would be like to, to, for those two armies to fight. So we got our two DMs together and we created the scenario by which the two armies could fight. And uh, what it basically was, was this bridge between universes and the loser their characters would actually die because we did play your character dies. You're not getting res. You're ripping up your character sheet effectively. The loser would die and all of their lands became the other person's. I would literally, if I lost, lose my campaign world to this other player. And similar, he would as well. So I was convinced after a certain point that there was no way my army was going to beat him. And so the big loggerhead army was... And the, and the debate that I have with my DM and every little adventure I could to get more power, to get an extra magic item, bring more forces to bear all by these rules that were mutually agreed upon, effectively our own mini adventure league before such a thing existed, <laughs> uh, was not getting me enough power. And I came up with this plot. I'm not going to give that here because that's a spoiler 
for Land of Eighteen Seas to see if I could win. We engaged the plot, but none of the characters agreed on this plan. And one of the characters, and it was done by die rolls, tricked all of the other characters and engaged the plan anyway. Wait, so sorry. I'm, hold on. I'm, I'm con- okay. That's that's where I was gonna because because I got. I got real confused when you were talking about multiple. So you're talking about multiple characters tricking each other, but one player. Yes. Okay. My DM. I, that is. I had a character who had a plan that none yes. of my other characters agreed to. I rolled the appropriate checks <laughs> to convince, trick, or bespell the other characters into agreeing it to it, and then did the enchantment so they forgot they agreed to it and did it anyway. That is an amazing amount of mental exercise. I, so I think I'm understanding the the complexity with one player playing multiple characters at the same table. Yeah, it can definitely be rough. And not a lot of people can separate it out the way that Lee did, particularly at younger ages. You know, I had some experience trying it with groups, but there was always, or not groups, but with like myself and a friend. But regardless of who was on which side of the of the table, the player and the and their multiple characters were almost always, you know, metagaming and stuff. It's very difficult at a younger age, or at least it was for me, to keep it separate like that. As as an older, more experienced role player, yeah, definitely easier. I can run a cast of characters, but Lee was a little ahead of his time. I guess so. At the time we're talking, I was 15, 15 16. So it wasn't even my senior year. I think it was 15 or 16 maybe 17 when we finally ran the final battle. If you think I'm ahead of my time, uh, uh, or I was ahead of my time, let's just consider the fact that Marty was DMing that mess at 13 years old. (laughs) Yeah, having... uh, I I, I see now why... uh, why Patreon supporter and friend of the show, Mr. Napier, uh, is uh, is considered such a paragon uh, among you two. I, um, uh, I am I'm glad to know him now. Uh, uh, in in my advanced years, to be able to kind of appreciate what he brings to the tables, that's insanity. Yeah, in his way, like Benito, he's a special kind of one in ten thousand kind of DM. Uh, anybody who's who's played at his table is lucky to be at his table. Because when he puts his when he puts his boots down to say this is what I want to do, it's all in, uh, and he's like that as a player and as a DM. Amazing, amazing person to game. With. All right, Glenn, how about you? What what about what about duet games for you? Like with um uh with kind of the standard one player one GM or one player playing multiple characters and one GM. What's what's your experience? And what did you find on this? I mean, I've done it both ways. I've done the one player, one GM with a single character. If I was running it, even if there was only a single other player, I did not like to go above letting them run two characters. But occasionally we'd go to three if we had something else going on. But this was also mostly going on during my uh, truly younger days when transportation was more limited and the friend pool uh, had not been expanded yeah. by you know the internet or uh, having a car. Um, so, I mean, these, these are mostly my early days. Cause again, I mean, I started young, I started, my first game was at like eight. So I had friends in like second and third grade that I'm playing D and D with, but it's like my best friend, Sean from across the street in me. But <laughs> at that age, you know, we weren't exactly doing a great job of keeping stuff separately. I mean, I think we tried regularly to convince each other that, yeah, we really did. We swear roll all 18s. <laughs> exactly. 
but I mean, it was good times and I had a lot of fun with it. But once I got to the point where I could develop a regular gaming group, which was mostly during scouts, um, cause yeah, we played D and D on boy scout campouts. Like sometimes actually it was a tradition underneath Cochigan rock to play D and D, um, with Lee and Marty and, you know, some of the other guys, once I got to that point, I didn't do a whole lot with solo play anymore. That's part of the reason why doing the research for this got me kind of excited on the journaling front. Yeah. I didn't even know that existed. And that sounds cool as shit. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, my, my first, my first ever RPG was a DM plus me game. Right. And, and like, we were both, I think 11. Right. Um, and like the pinnacle of two know nothings trying to go ahead and figure out how the hell this thing worked. It was not uh, once I found a gaming group and a part and the party system of playing with a party. I very quickly was like, uh, solo is not where I want to be because for me, being at the table and throwing math rocks is, so, is such a social experience. That, like that's all part of it for me. Uh, part of the mm-hmm. enjoyment that I get from it is the social experience of it all. Um, and so uh, I, I pretty quickly decided that. I wanted more than just kind of me and a DM. Uh, but I also agree with you, Glenn, that the, the journaling, the truly solo RPG thing is very interesting. Um, and, and was very attractive to me, uh, as I was looking into all this. One of the things that I noticed was that in second edition, they had a number of solo adventures set up by class. You had the fighters adventure module. You had the rogues, the clerics, the wizard. And then they were so very popular, they actually came back about two years later and did Fighter 2, Cleric 2, Wizard 2, whatever. And that would take you, if played through one after the other, that would take you up to about level five, which is interesting because that's where characters become survivable and good. So one of the things that I did was I had, at one point, a set of players that once they picked their classes, I took them through those adventures. Like, so I would, and it was just me and one player and I'd ran, I'd run them through the fighter. I think at one point I had two wizards. So I ran two wizards through the wizard things. I just had to make the adjustments, but I essentially ran each of them through the adventures up to that point and then joined the party after each of those solo adventures. And I found that to be a lot of fun. Timing, college, I had to, I moved to Maine, uh, ended that, but I was also running a big game at that time. So I had actually stopped that other game so I could continue running that game because it got, had gotten very big. Like we had um, large metal cylinders of beverage each night and we had people who could not get into the game because they didn't have enough seats at the table that would actually drop a little money at the door to get cups for the cylinder beverage and watch us play. You can just game. call it a keg. I mean, they have them in D&E too. <laughs> They're just made out of wood. But uh, I actually ran a game where that happened and uh, a lot of fun, tons of fun. Many great memories uh, are, were there uh, or had there. Heck, and, at least and, once instead it, of a keg, it was a, it was a Coors Light party ball. Oof. It was one of those situations where I liked the concept of creating the backstory by virtue of this solo experience. So it was one player, one DM creating the backstory even though it was a pre-generated module. So when they joined the group, they had two adventures worth of story and experience as playing the character to lean on and discuss with other characters. Where have you been? Well, I was in this part of the world because I placed those modules on a map. I've been here. I know these people. So if the group decides to go to a place, 
And that's where one of these modules happened. The NPCs there know the one character, how he acted during his solo adventures impacted the campaign. And I thought that was kind of cool. Okay, so let us try to to wrap this up with uh, maybe some suggestions on how somebody can get into uh, any of the kind of these various playing paths that would that would go into and i'm gonna i think i'm gonna start with kind of the obvious one right is that's that the internet in this case is your friend there are innumerable communities resources uh i know when when uh, when madam amy and i kind of were first talking about this the 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 black hole that you can fall down in researching solo rpgs is immense there's a ton of variations um and they are all a little different either thematically or or in the way that they kind of run like glenn when you were talking earlier about kind of that journal plus oracle game that is like it has kind of the game engine but it's also a journal journaling game and that kind of thing um so no you do have to be uh, be a little careful or dedicate a ton of time to it but uh there's a ton of content on the internet in terms of how to get into particularly solo true solo rpgs dm's guild uh thankfully has also a, either either dm's guild or drive through rpg um there is a bunch RPG of really lot, great modules that are uh that are priced very competitively on those um you can you can spend anywhere from two or three bucks for a for kind of a single challenge uh anywhere up to like an entire anthology of challenges for for 30 35 bucks something like that so you know there's there's really there's a lot of variation on price point and there's a lot of variation on the content there's a ton of resources that you can go ahead and find just by just by searching and getting uh, uh kind of filtering through through the results um i was gonna say the one thing i would add to what you said josh is as the person who had known very little about the true solo game prior to researching this, one of the things that I found mm-hmm. was interesting when seeing all those same price points is paying attention to the markers. If you see something is silver or gold uh, sold on Drive Through RPG or uh, DM's Guild, that's a good hallmark for you. That means lots of people have bought it, and, and it may be wor- that may be a good place to start. Obviously, check your wallet, know where your price point needs to be. But if you start with that, which is most popular, you're probably going to find something that's a little more road tested. Uh, that may be a good spot. That doesn't mean the other ones are bad by any means. But if you're going in 100% blind, like I was, starting with the popular is a good place to go. And then build from there. Talk to the community about that game and listen to when people say, hey, if you like X, try Y. That's where you can branch out and try some of those lesser known things without putting a whole lot at risk. So yeah, risk tolerance is a thing. It's actually something they teach you about in uh, you know business school, small business management, entrepreneurship classes. I find it interesting that Lily closed with risk when he was saying that because my opinion is a little bit different, but it's just because I view the risk differently. Um, sometimes when I'm looking at those, and this isn't to disagree with Lee because he's 100% right and his strategy is solid, but I'm a little bit paranoid. And sometimes I'm like, how do I know that guy with the gold or the silver label didn't just have a bigger marketing budget? <laughs> you know, because yeah. right now as a content creator, I have almost no marketing budget and I might put out something quality. So yeah, yeah. I'll do exactly what Lee's saying. And I'll usually wind up buying at least two things. I'll buy the, my favorite mainstream. I'm pretty sure this one's coming from a solid company. But I'll also look for something from a smaller, a, a smaller creator that grabs me. 
Um, that's how I wound up buying the adventurer game today. It was five bucks and it's super simple, but just the way it was described. And it's the one that I ran across and I'm like, that's the one I'm going to try. So, you know, don't be afraid to to take risk either. If you know, that fits into to, to the direction that you're headed, but I'm kind of excited about the adventure. And because we were talking about this, I'm contemplating and I'm not promising anything, but I was thinking about, you know, we started doing a little bit of blog article additions to the website maybe running a journal-based adventure off of the game that i just bought and posting it for our readers so they can get an idea i think you absolutely should be doing that glenn i think that that's a fabulous idea not 100 percent positive i have the bandwidth right now which is why i'm not (laughs) promising anything but I'm going to start yeah. toying with the toying with the idea more seriously. Don't worry. The, the, the hundred people that are going to listen to this episode uh, or so, are none of them will remember, I promise. So you see, I was going to go with the internet as your friend, but more specifically, Google is your friend. Um, you know, just start out with type in the words. And I, it's amazing how much some people that I know have trouble with just the concept of just be specific. You know, so literally solo tabletop. So you don't wind up with computer games, RPGs. And you're going to get a list. Uh, Dicebreaker has two or three articles on them. a ton of them, yeah. Uh, Yeah. Uh, Well, I only read two or three of them, but they've got a bunch. Um, And you're going to find anything, everything from Dicebreaker to Reddit to Gizmodo that are going to have 12 board games and RPGs you can play alone, you know, and you'll find lists because that's one of the most favorite blog style. Absolutely. My search this morning came up with a list of things and at least two subreddits, four articles, several of them I linked in our group chat as uh, as a team so we'd have some stuff to look at, and even a few YouTube videos explaining the process uh, as far as how to do this. So uh, there's a lot of information out there. If you're talking about a true solo game, that's how you're going to do it. Now, if you're talking a single DM and a single player, all of that holds true as far as figuring out the how-to or whatever, but talk to the community, join our Facebook group, join our Patreon, yeah, talk with our, our, fe- our, our fellow, fellow patrons, talk to us on Twitter and any number of the folks that follow us and the various other uh, folks that we're connected with. And you're going to find people who are looking for games. Uh, if you're talking about a single DM, single player, uh, if you're thinking of being the DM and you can't find a player who's willing to do that experience, consider the play-by-post version of that and go to Tangled Web, who we interviewed a few weeks ago. You know, there's a number of great ways to do a duet game or true solo game and have those resources. And the play-by-post really works well if time is at a premium for you as it is with the three of us. I love that you brought that up because one of the last closing thoughts that I personally had for the episode is I wanted to pitch something to ask you a question because journaling... The journaling style solo game made me think of it, right? And you're doing more current events with play by post than a post dated journal entry as though it's a past event. But would you say that play by post is kind of collaborative journal gaming? I would agree with that assessment. Now we are playing what I view. I don't know because I don't, I don't pre-read modules because eventually I may end up playing in them. So I don't like to spoil things for myself. So unless I intend to run a module, I don't tend to read. Um, but uh, we're playing Ghosts of Salt March in my Tangled Web uh, play-by-post game. And I believe we are running through a preset adventure. I won't know till it's done. Once it's done, I'll ask the question, then I'll go find it because I own the book, mind you. But I haven't looked at any of the adventure stuff. 
Uh, but I do believe we are playing one of the boxed adventures and I'm having an absolute blast. But I do think it is very much that, except as opposed to world as a whole, it is literally piece of scene by piece of scene or combat by combat because it is literally, it's about one to one and a half posts per day. And when everybody posts, the, 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 the uh, DM responds and then we move on to the next post. I was worried about how combat would go. I actually thought that combat was going to be very clunky and very difficult other than me not being good at computer stuff and programming. Once I got a little help thank you, Josh, <laughs> on how to make the dice roller work. Once I got that down, it's a breeze and the combat was glorious, glorious. I mean, it was actually one of the better combats I've done in role-playing at a low level as a player in a while. I haven't been a level two character in a game in a very long time. The game I'm currently in, we're level 12. I started that game at level six. So I don't even know the last time that I was a level two player. And I haven't run a level two campaign or group in over two and a half years because my groups are, uh, I have long-term campaigns that are far advanced from that. But I can tell you, I it was beautiful. Everybody did their thing. People were very helpful for me as uh, clearly I'm a newbie. Just so much fun. So I think whether it be true journal style like that, because they do things other than D&D on Tangled Web, or DM in a single PC, I think it's a style amazingly well-suited to the solo or duet game. Uh, I think that there's a lot of... Uh really interesting opportunities in there that that but that sounds uh that sounds fantastic and i really like the way that you uh, characterize that as a uh, collaborative journal building game uh glenn i think that that i think is a would be a fabulous description so cool Let's uh, let's put a cap on this. I want to say one other thing is that we do have a ton of sources that the three of us found preparing this episode. So I'm going to put them up on the website uh, somehow and then link that into the show notes. Probably create like a solo RPG page or something that you guys can click on. So be looking down. If you're interested in getting in, uh, look down in the show notes. Uh, there will be a link in there that will bring you to uh, to our mass gathering of... <laughs> Of short of uh, of shortcuts and resources, uh, so that you can dive into the uh, the black hole of the internet, uh, like uh, uh, like we did. Um, I really want to thank Madam Amy from the Marvelous Madams for giving us this idea for a show. This was a lot of fun to look into and to put together. So uh, kudos to, kudos to her. And uh, if you want to hear us talk about anything, please let us know. We are happy to go ahead and uh, uh, take other suggestions uh, from uh, from folks out there in the audience about uh, potential show ideas. So thank you very much, Madam Amy. Hope you enjoyed this. And everybody else who sent questions in for us because that qu that episode was a whole lot of fun. To, it was a whole uh, lot of fun. We got a, we got a lot of ideas. We have out a lot of, it, of ideas so. out of it. We haven't even. We, this is just the first one. I think there are probably four or five that are that came out of that episode. So, uh, yeah. so there will be more coming soon. I was going to add that we are mining that episode and the questions we got for the content that we are producing uh, in the back half of this year. Uh, we are yep. also going into the types of questions we watch Shadow and Bone at the behest of a patron. We have done questions. We are continuing to do questions for other folks patrons and non-patrons alike who have asked us questions that have resulted in, in uh, episode ideas that will be coming to you in the future. And when we do, we're going to call out the fact that, that this is where this came from because we started this mission to build a community, talk about the things we talk about, but to surround ourselves with folks 
who are like-minded want to learn and do the things that we like to learn about and do. And uh, this episode, episodes like it are proof that it's working. Uh, it's proof that, that we have a great audience uh, who's in it for the same reasons we're in it. And that's to have some fun, learn a few things along the way uh, and bring other people into the fold. And I, I love it when you uh, when you lead directly into where I was going to go, because you mentioned Shadow and Bone. Shadow and Bone, which is currently winning, uh, or is currently the leading uh, best not new non-MCU show on our Twitter poll right now, so uh, for the Tabletop Journey SideQuest Awards. Um, so if you are uh, interested in getting in on that, please be following us on Twitter and on Facebook. Throughout the month of September, there are going to be polls about the uh these tabletop journey side quest awards the award show where we reveal the winners of these will be uh be in october so be watching for that also and then uh one other thing that i wanted to go ahead and say and only uh literally because as i was as we were getting ready to go ahead and record this show um their kickstarter closed uh i think that uh we we need to give a huge props to Magpie Games uh, and the creator of the Avatar Legends role-playing game. Uh, mm. it, ju- it just closed, and boy, did it close in ridiculous fashion. $9.5 million. It funded in 16 Ooh. minutes, 80, 82,000 backers, 34 stretch goals. It is the number 10 top-funded Kickstarter of all time and the number one-funded ttrpg on kickstarter uh an amazing run for them uh uh so uh, uh so cool i am very excited uh to be getting my copy uh with all of the stretch goals that opened up on that so uh kudos to the uh the folks over at magpie games uh and the avatar rpg i actually really wanted to get on that before it closed out i forgot it closed out tonight it closed out tonight Damn. yeah oh well yep well well you know what? We might just have to go ahead and do uh, do an AP episode where we play through it after I get it. I mean, I'm not sure that's a might. I own all of the seasons <laughs> of Avatar on DVD. I've seen the entire series. Yep. I don't know how yep. many times, not yep. just with my kids, but yep. by myself. I, I know a couple of people that I'd be able to bring and to the table. So let's... he made sure I watched it. That was like one of the first DVD sets he ever <laughs> made sure I watched. He's like, you must watch this. Like, I didn't ask him for it. He actually showed up the house book one in hand and said here you must watch actually yeah, i think that was for when your D game was running over in uh your old apartment and i brought it to D one night saying yep. watch this pretty much you must watch this and i'm like oh, okay whatever i'm like i don't watch nickelodeon show. he's like you're watching this one <laughs> you're watching this one <laughs> all right everybody thank you very much for listening i hope that you all enjoyed this episode just as much as we uh we had fun uh and please check that check the show notes uh for that link uh so you can go ahead and uh see the uh the depth that we uh we plumbed in here because boy there's a bunch of stuff on there so uh thank you all for listening and we'll talk to you again next time Thank you for joining us. This has been Tabletop Journeys. We would love to hear your feedback on our show today. You can join us at www.ttjourneys.com, where you can subscribe to the blog to leave comments and see all the content that we publish beyond the podcast. And make sure you join our growing online community. You can follow us on Twitter at TT Journeys and join us on Facebook just by searching Tabletop Journeys there. You can also reach us by email at podcast at ttjourneys.com. And if you want to catch early access to our episodes and some of the other benefits we have coming down the pipeline, you can also support our production at patreon.com slash ttjourneys. If you're listening to us on Stitcher, 
iTunes, Podchaser, Spotify, Audible, or any other podcast platform, we would really appreciate if you would like and subscribe to the podcast. Full episodes come out every week on Saturdays and every Wednesdays. We'll feature our SideQuest series where we talk about pretty much anything tabletop oriented. Thank you all so much for listening and for being a part of our growing community. And in the words of another traveler on our path, we bid you shade and sweet water.